Um, I was raised in Orange County, and in the summertime, I was doing one of three things. I was either at the beach, or I was on a baseball diamond somewhere, or I was on horseback. Those were my three things. I had, a, I had an older brother who was much older than me, who was a baseball star, and he got us interested in baseball. I had an older sister who was even older than him, and uh, she was an animal person, and she was a horse trainer, and so she would take us, my younger brother and me, she would take us to the stables with her during the summertime where she was working and training horses, and, and I was on horseback, like full-size horse by myself by the time I was two or three years old. I grew up on a horse. It was comfortable for me. I was used to it, so it was nothing unusual for me on a summer day that I found myself uh, trotting up the Santa Ana River Trail on, the, on horseback. And as I just trotted up the trail and uh, enjoyed the day and thought about what was going on, I started to hear some kind of a, like a crowd noise up ahead. And I was really uh, astonished by it. I thought, what is that all about? And so I kicked the horse a little bit and we took off running and we headed up further. And as we came up through like into Anaheim, um, Anaheim Stadium was up on the left and there was this crowd there and they were, they were screaming and they were chanting. And uh, as I got closer, it was the weirdest thing. It they were chanting my name. And so I thought, this is the weirdest thing. So I just turned off and went into the parking lot there of Angel Stadium, and I got off my horse, and as I got off my horse, I realized it was actually a stick horse. It wasn't a real horse at all. And I just handed it to this guy, and I went through this tunnel as they were chanting my name. And I looked down, and I noticed I was wearing an Angel's uniform. And so I went into the stadium, and as I went into the stadium, the announcer was announcing me to come up to bat. And as I went up to bat, I stepped into the box with the bat in my hand, and I looked looked out, it was Nolan Ryan on the mound. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is my big chance. And they were chanting my name, and they were chanting my name, when suddenly, out of the left field bullpen, there came a marching band, and they were playing a song by Aerosmith. It was the weirdest <laughs> thing. And, and as their marching band is marching toward me, the music is getting louder and louder, and I'm hearing, uh, I'm hearing uh, St Steven Tyler screaming, dream on, dream on, right? And I'm like, oh my gosh. This is the craziest thing in the world. And then suddenly I realized my bat was a guitar and I started playing that Joe Perry guitar lick. It was incredible. The crowd was going wild and all the girls in the stands were shouting my name. It was the most amazing thing. And the music got louder and louder until finally I reached over and hit my clock <laughs> and hit that snooze button and made it give up. And I thought, wow. That was awesome. I'm going to go back and hit the snooze button and sleep a little while longer. First period can wait for me, right? I want to see how this dream ends up. <laughs> Do you ever have a dream like that where you wake up and it is so vivid and so real and you're like, man, it made total sense to me in the dream, but now I'm going, what, what, what was that about and what was this about? I don't really understand, but there's just this feeling that you have sometimes when you wake up from a really vivid dream, right? Where you're just like, ha, ah, ha, I feel like there's something there. I feel like there was something real about that. Obviously, that was God's way of telling me that his will for my life was to both play for the angels and play for Aerosmith. But... <laughs> That's how I took it anyway, and so far it hasn't happened, but I, you know, God keeps his word, right? So, <laughs> I, 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, ushers, can we have these people escorted out? <laughs> um, Joseph had familiarity with dreams like that, where he had dreams and he woke up and went, wow, there was something to this dream. I can't shake it. I can't forget about it. I know it means something. There's something going on here. And, and he st his story begins with him having dreams like that, right? And now we've been following his story and he has been imprisoned. And of course, the cupbearer and the baker have these vivid dreams. Same kind of thing. They know there's something to it. I, I'm just shaken by this dream. I know that there's some message in this dream for me. And so they come to Joseph and ask him to interpret it, right? Now Joseph is 30 years old. He is, he's been in Egypt for 13 years. He's either been a slave or in prison that entire time. And, and his dreams from his youth are becoming quieter and quieter and quieter in his mind. They're fading more and more into the distance. Reality has set in, and he's come to realize it doesn't seem like any of the stuff I thought was going to happen is actually going to happen. And then it happened. Pharaoh finally had his dream. And that dream changed everything for Joseph. And we find this in Genesis chapter 41. So if you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 41, or if you got an iPad or a phone or whatever it is, find the scripture however you find the scripture. And let's go to the first book of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, and let's pick it up in chapter 41, verse 1. Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream. And behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile, there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they gazed in the marsh grass. And behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt, and they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke. He fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven years of grain came up on a single stalk, <clears throat> plump and good. Then behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who can interpret for Pharaoh. Okay? So listen, these are weird, but they're dreams. Dreams are always weird, right? So here's what happens. He's dreaming, and out of the Nile come seven big, beefy, beautiful cows. And they come up out of the Nile because, as we know, cows are amphibious creatures, right? <laughs> and so the cows come up out of the Nile, and they just look beautiful, and they're big and strong and healthy. And then suddenly, out of the Nile, come up the ugliest, mangiest-looking things he's ever seen. Just big old bulges eyes and, and bones sticking out, skinny and thin. They look like they're about to die. They look like they've been starving to death. And they come up into the, into the grasslands among the big fat cows, and suddenly, the ugly, skinny, 
unhealthy cows swallow up the big, fat, healthy cows. And he wakes up with a start, and he's sweating, and his heart is beating, and he's like, wow, that was weird. That was strange. There was something real about that. I know that little, thin cows don't eat big, fat cows. I know that cows don't come up out of the river, but I'm telling you, there was something about that dream. I think the gods are trying to tell me something. And so you could picture him just mopping his brow and finally calming himself down. He goes back to sleep and he has a second dream. And in the second dream, it's not quite as graphic as the first dream, but you just have this uh, stalk that comes up with these ears of grain on it. And they're plump and fat and juicy and beautiful and perfect. And next to it grows up this little weed looking thing that's all burnt and scorched and skinny. And the weed just eats up the healthy uh, grain. Seven ears here are eaten up by the seven ears here. Very similar dream. He wakes up again with the start. He's sweating. He's panting. His heart is beating. He's like, I know that I know that I know that there's some message in this. And I'll bet you he never got back to sleep that night. And as the morning finally dawns, immediately, as soon as the sun comes up, the first thing he does is deals with these dreams. He says, I have got to get somebody who can tell me what these dreams mean. So he calls for all of the wise men, all of the magicians, all of the sorcerers, all the conjurers, all the people in Egypt who are known for this kind of thing. And he gets them all together and he tells them what the dream is. And then he says, is there anybody who can interpret my dream? But nobody could. He says, I need somebody to tell me what this means. There's maybe dozens, maybe hundreds of guys standing in front of him. And you can hear crickets. And there's maybe some muttering and some people looking down. And nobody wants to make eye contact with Pharaoh. Nobody wants to get into this with him. Nobody wants to talk about this. Why? Because what happens if you get it wrong? Remember what happened to the baker? What happens if you get it wrong? You, you've made your reputation on the idea that you can, you can tell the future, you can interpret dreams, you, you hear from the gods, all of that kind of stuff. And now Pharaoh is asking you in front of everybody, here's your chance, and they all shrink back. Because they know that they're going to be making it up. They know that they have no idea what the dream means, then they have no way to interpret what the dream means. And so the last thing they want to do is be the guy who stepped up and said, I know what it means and get it wrong. And so you hear crickets. And Pharaoh is looking for anybody who has the ability. He's called all these guys. And, and remember, this is Egypt, ancient Egypt. This is the world's capital at this time. And as the world's great empire, they are also sort of the uh, center, center point for paganism. And there is a, a what was then a neo-paganism, a new kind of paganism. It had advanced beyond tribal kinds of paganism. And this was a kind of a paganism that had a structure and a system. And the pharaohs were a part of the system. And everything in nature was a god. And there were certain gods that were above other gods. And they had a whole system in place. And they believed in all kinds of superstition. They sought out all kinds of signs and symbols. If there was something in the sky, 
sky. They paid attention to it. There was a whole group of people who were into astrology, and they, they're the ones who began to read the stars and come up with messages from the gods that were coming from the stars and all that kind of stuff. But all they really were doing was tricking people, and they knew it. All they really were doing was deceiving folks. All they were really doing was misleading people who were desperate, who would come to them and say, I'll give you money if you just tell me my future, right? Basically, they made stuff up. And because people are looking for answers, there's always people who are willing to pay. So this is big business for them. And when Pharaoh needs an interpretation, they don't have the courage to step up and say anything because it could put them out of business. It could cost them their head. So when Pharaoh's looking for answers, there's no answers. And that's when the cupbearer finally remembers. Two years after Joseph interpreted his dream, two years after Joseph got him sprung from prison, two years after Joseph looked him in the eye and said, listen, there's only one thing I ask of you, I beg of you, please, as soon as you get back to the palace, tell the Pharaoh about me. Tell him about what I did to interpret the dreams. Tell him about how I was uh, taken captive and brought to this land. Tell him about how I did nothing wrong, but I've been thrown in this dungeon. Tell him about how I'm wasting away here and I should be let go so I can go home. And, and, the, and he looked at the cupbearer and he looked him straight in the eyes and said, I'm begging you, please don't forget. Tell him right away. And, and he must have been watching, marking the wall one, two, three, four, every day that went by, waiting to hear from Pharaoh. And probably for the first week or so, he thought, okay, probably today's the day. And after a couple of weeks, he probably thought, man, I hope he doesn't forget. And after a month or two or three, he probably forgets all about it himself and says, I'm stuck here. It's never going to change. And finally, after two years, ta-da, he hears this Pharaoh needs an interpretation. He goes, wait a second, that rings a bell. There was a guy. Who, where was that guy? It was the guy in jail. I remember there was this guy in jail and he had the ability to interpret dreams. I was supposed to have said something about this guy. Maybe now's the time to step up and say something about him. Look at verse 9. Uh, then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Uh, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, a Hebrew youth was there with us, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream, and just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, uh, but he hanged him. Wow. Now, it's been years now that he's been in this dungeon. Remember, remember how young and handsome Joseph was when he got there? Remember how Potiphar's wife couldn't keep her hands off him? He was this good-looking young guy. He's so good-looking that Moses comments on it and says, now don't forget, this guy Joseph was exceptionally good-looking, right? But now he's been in this dungeon for years. By now, his hair is all grown out. He hasn't had a bath in literally years. His beard is all grown out. He's got food from months ago stuck in his beard, right? He, you ever see that movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? 
that's what he looked like. We have a picture of him. There he is. That's a lot of people don't know there was some early pictures taken of Joseph. That's, that's a picture. He, I mean, he was at the place where his best friend was a volleyball. That's where he was. He had been in that dungeon a long, long time. And now it's like, hey, get this guy and bring him immediately to Pharaoh. Well, you can't take a guy who looks like that and bring him immediately to Pharaoh. So here's what they did. Verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent out and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. And now he looks clean cut. Now he's back to being good looking. Now he finally doesn't smell like yesterday's garbage, right? And uh, they bring him before Pharaoh. Verse 15, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Pharaoh says, I've been told that you have the power, that you have the ability to interpret dreams for people. And immediately look how Joseph responds. Look again at verse 16. Then Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I love that response because remember, this was his big chance. This is a place that believes there are people who are magicians. This is a place that believes there are people who are sorcerers. There are fortune tellers. There are people who have these mystical gifts from the gods that somehow they're able to do this. And a guy who is able to interpret Pharaoh's dream is worth more than all these other magicians and sorcerers and soothsayers and astrologers all put together. This is his chance. He's been waiting to become great. This is his chance. Maybe he could become the head seer in Pharaoh's palace. If he can get Pharaoh to believe that he has this power, and obviously Pharaoh is already open to it. And, and if it was me, I would have probably stepped right up and said, you know what, Pharaoh? I do have that ability. Tell me your dream, and I will tell you its interpretation. And that is not what Joseph does. Joseph stops, and he goes, no, you heard wrong. It's not in me to interpret dreams. It's God who interprets dreams. Now remember, Pharaoh thinks that he is a god, right? And he needs his followers to believe that he is a god. So this is a dangerous statement to make. What's he saying? He's saying, I know you've been telling people that you're a god and everything, but you and I both know you ain't. And... and uh, the sun is not a god, and the moon is not a god, and the Nile is not a god. Any of those things in nature that you worship, those things are not God. And by the way, I'm not saying I'm God, because I'm not God either. But I'll tell you what, I know him very well. And he will give you the interpretation of this dream. And when he does, it is not I who should receive the glory, it is he who should receive the glory. Remember the theme of the book of Genesis. There is only one God, and He created everything. Remember, the book of Genesis is Moses' manifesto, along with the other four books of the Pentateuch. This is Moses' manifesto against paganism. He begins his writings with these words, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You people love to worship things that have been created, but there is a God who created everything. He's the only God. He's the only true God. He is the only one with power. He is the one who created the stuff that you bow down and worship. And so Moses is constantly arguing against this idea that there are many gods. And now he has to argue, Joseph has to argue against Pharaoh who claims himself to be a god. He's putting himself in grave danger. But the the whole point of Moses' writing of these five books is to let us know that there is one God and he is the creator of everything. He is above all. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. There was none before him and there'll be none after him. He is the one and only true God. That's what we should get out of Genesis if we don't get anything else. Amen? Amen. Okay. So that brings us to what I think is really the first big lesson of chapter 41. So if you're a note taker, this is what you write down. Lesson number one, it's not about you. It's all about God. He said, I heard that you have this power. I heard that you can do this thing. And Joseph said, no, anything you heard about me doesn't matter. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. It is not about me. It is all about my God. So don't make the mistake of thinking I'm great because I'm not great. He's great. Don't make the, think, the mistake of thinking I'm powerful because I'm not powerful. He's powerful. Don't make the mistake of thinking that I am some special one. He's the special one. So you can worship what you want, but there's only one God. You could try to be the Lord of your own life, but there's still only one God. And here's the thing about God that I find very interesting. He is not willing to share the throne with anyone or anything. We must not forget There is one God, and he is not willing to share the throne with anyone or anything. That was true for Adam and Eve when they said, we will rise up and be our own gods. And God said, actually, you won't. It was true for the people of Noah's day who rose up against God and God just squashed them. It it was true for Pharaoh in Joseph's day. And it's true for you, and it's true for me. He... He is not going to share the throne with any of us or any of the things that we worship. So here's Joseph. After 13 years in captivity, Joseph could see it clear as day. It is all about God and it is not about me. And guys, when we're struggling and when we're having a hard time, when we find ourselves in the proverbial dungeon, if you will, it is really, really, really hard to remember that it is not about me. Because it's amazing. You could see this with little kids, but we're just like grown-up little kids, right? Little kids don't know how to hide it as well as we do as adults, but we're just the same. You could see this so easily with little kids, right? If you have two children and three cookies, and you give two cookies to one kid and one cookie to another kid, someone is going to say, this is not fair. Which one? The one with one cookie. Do you think the one with two cookies will ever say, hey, mom, this is not fair? Have you ever heard a kid say that? No. We want fairness when it's us who are struggling. But when we're doing well, we're just fine. Hey, I deserve this. I'm good. God says, listen, 
It is not about you. It's about something bigger than you. It is beyond you. And sometimes we have to be able to look at our experiences and and stop saying, why me? This isn't fair. Oh, why doesn't God love me? How come I wasn't taken care of? And we just need to stop and go, wow, there is a good God. There's a holy God. There's an all-powerful God who loves me and he is watching over my life and still I'm going through this. So he must have something that he's doing because it's not about me, it's about him. It was true then, and it's true today. But before we move on, let's look at a second lesson that's important from today's story. When you have a serious problem, the answers are not in the world. The answers are in the Word. Now, that's a good one, so write that down. When you have a serious problem, the answers are not in the world. The answers are in the Word. And you can... You can search all throughout everything the world has to offer. You can read every self-help book. You can go to every counselor. You can take every pill. You can sit under the teaching of every religious guru. You can find everything that the world has to offer. But there is nothing that this world has to offer that solves man's deepest problems. There is nothing that this world has to offer that gives answers to man's deepest questions. There is nothing that this world can do to explain the things that only God can explain. There is this incredible tendency in us to think that we'll find the answer if we just keep turning over rocks, eventually there'll be an answer. And and listen, I'm not knocking everything out there that helps people, right? But but I'm just blown away how, how many times I'm just driving down the street and I'm looking at the signs of the businesses and I see fortune teller signs. In 21st century America, like these people are making money. Fortune tellers, come in, I'll read some tea leaves or maybe the marks on your hands or turn over some cards, I could tell you your future. It'll cost you a hundred bucks, but it's worth it. And people do it. And, and, and people go see um, worldly counselors who have absolutely no understanding of the soul or of God or of anything that God has to say or the word of God. And they sit with those counselors and they pour out their hearts and they listen to what they have to say and they take it in and they find that they feel better after talking, but they don't get better. But they just keep going. And we could read self-help books. There's all these, you know, meditation, yoga, you try it, it all comes up empty. When Pharaoh had a need, he called everyone in the kingdom. And, and he took all their little branches of wisdom. There were some who were called wise men. Some who were called magi. There were some who were called sorcerers. There were some who were called magicians. There are some who were called astrologers. And he brings them all together and he says, all right, show me. What's the answer? You know what the problem is? The answers aren't in the world. The answers are in the word. Now, that's not to say that there, you, you can't get anything good from a secular counselor. That's not to say that there's no medication that will help you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if we bypass the things of the soul and try to deal with the things of our minds and our bodies, we will always come up short because the answers are not in the world. The answers are in the word. It's, it's amazing. In my counseling ministry, I've, I've been counseling for about 30 years, biblical counseling. 
And, and it's so common that I'll sit down with somebody who's a new client, and they sit down, they begin to tell me what's going on in their life, and they begin to share a little bit, and I listen, and I take some notes, and they talk about these um, besetting issues that have been going on in their life for many years, and they're struggling, and they're hurting, and my heart is going out to them, and I'll say, have you ever had any counseling? And they'll say, often, oh, yes, um, I've been seeing this counselor every Tuesday afternoon for the last 10 years, and I'll say, uh, is it working? And they will typically stop and think and say something like, you know, I always feel better after I leave a counseling session. For 10 years, at 200 bucks an hour, I've been going every Tuesday, and I always feel better when I leave. There's something about getting it off your chest, right? Something about talking to a good listener that really helps. To which I say, it's just fiscally more wise to get a dog. Because <laughs> your dog will listen, your dog will not judge, your dog will not tell anybody, and your dog most certainly will not charge you 200 bucks an hour. <laughs> Except, I don't know, vet bills being what they are. But... but but if you actually want to get transformed, if you actually want to change, if you actually want your life to get onto a different course, it's going to take more than someone listening and nodding and saying, I see, I see. Don't feel bad about that. I see. It's going to take somebody who will take the word of God and give it to you and help you to see the principles of truth so you can apply those things in your life and begin to walk by the principles that God has given us in his word. And when that happens, people get set free and they don't come every Tuesday for 10 years. They get set free. Their lives begin to change as they begin to apply the word of God. There's, it's all the difference in the world, whether you, you're going to believe that the world has your answers or that the word has your answers. All right, that's a tangent. Let's keep going. So for the next eight verses, Pharaoh tells Joseph about his dreams. And at the end of verse 24, look what it says. Uh, chapter 41, verse 24. Uh, if we pick it up in the middle of the verse, right when he finishes telling his dreams. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And we already talked about this. Why would they even try? They know that they're making it up, and there's too much at stake. So none of them even tried, right? But look at verse 25. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told Pharaoh what he is about to do. Once again, there's no, you know, take this with a grain of salt, I'm not sure, of course, because dreams are weird. There's no, you know, don't hold me to this. But what I'm thinking is, no, he doesn't say that. He goes, listen, God's going to tell you, you the meaning of your dream. And then when Pharaoh tells him the dream, he says, okay, here is what God says your dream means. There's complete confidence. Verse 26. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. The seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will come. And all abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. And the famine will ravage the land. 
So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God and God will quickly bring it about. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise uh, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action and appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food uh, of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land of um, for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now, the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. Okay, real quick, here's the interpretation. There's going to be seven years of incredible abundance. This land is going to be blessed. There's going to be way more crops than we need. It's going to be incredible, and it's going to go on for seven years. And, you know, three, four, five, six, seven years into this, people are going to just get comfortable with it. This is just the way it is. There's this kind of abundance. It's unbelievable. And But here's what you do, Pharaoh. You get somebody who is wise to run this program, and you put a tax in place, and you tax 20% of the abundance. During the years of abundance, you, you put a 20% tax in place. Now, people aren't going to like it because people don't like taxes, but you know what? It'll be okay because you're taxing them out of their overabundance anyway, right? And when those seven years have passed and we hit those seven years of famine, they're going to be singing your praises. You're going to be the hero. You're going to be, be the brilliant one who figured out a way to get them through this time. So appoint a wise man to be in charge of the whole thing. And look at Pharaoh's response, verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold necklace around his neck. And he had him ride in his second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zaphethanah Paneah. Uh, and he gave him Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over all the land of Egypt. Guys, don't miss this. This is the third big lesson of this chapter. It's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture. You'll find it beginning to end in Scripture, and it's, it's highlighted for us here. In fact, it's really highlighted well in the book of James. Take your Bibles and go to the back of the Old, uh, New Testament and find the book of James. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. But uh, go to the book of James and open to James chapter 4. It's right after Hebrews. And let me just read to you what it says in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. This is worth underlining in your Bible. 
But God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's the principle. Humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. Humble yourself before God, and he will lift you up. Joseph never once tried to exalt himself in all his time in Egypt. Never once. All he did was serve God in humility by serving people in humility. He served humbly in Potiphar's house when he was made to be a slave. And he was exalted to a place of prominence and authority in Potiphar's house. He, he humbly served in prison. And so what did they do? They put him in charge of the whole place. And now he humbles himself before Pharaoh. He gives glory to God. And what happens? God exalts him and makes him prime minister of the greatest empire on earth at the time. When are we going to get it? It's not about us. It's all about him. The answers are not in the world. The answers are in the word. And when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. Go back to Genesis. Look at verse 46. Genesis chapter 41. Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. Now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. Manasseh means forgetfulness. And he named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Ephraim means fruitfulness. This is a picture of God's blessing. God's blessed him with position. God's blessed him with wealth. God's blessed him with health. God's blessed him with a family. Now God has given him these two sons and he names these sons accordingly. I can now forget all of the pain of my past. And every time I look at my eldest son, I'm going to remember God has a new day before me and it is not about living with the scars of my past anymore. I'm not going to be controlled by my past. I'm going to let all of that stuff go. There's going to be a certain forgetfulness in my life and I'm going to move forward now. And he gives them this second son and basically says, every time I look at this boy, I'm going to remember God has promised to make me fruitful. Fruitful doesn't just mean that I'm going to get a lot of stuff. Fruitful means I'm going to give a lot of stuff. I'm going to bear a lot of fruit. I'm going to be a blessing to a lot of people. It's a blessing. In fact, he even, God even blesses the people outside of Egypt. Look at verse 53. Uh, when the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was a famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. 
So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. So all the surrounding countries are now making treks to Egypt because they've heard there's food in Egypt. And as this famine spreads, Egypt is the one place that you can go and get sustenance. Why? Is it because Joseph is a great leader? No, it's because God is a great God. And everybody knows it because Joseph will not let them say otherwise. And everybody says, all hail Joseph. Joseph says, all hail God. Whenever anybody says, wow, Joseph, you're incredible, he goes, no, God is incredible. And he's constantly being lifted up by God. And what does he do? He in turn humbles himself and lifts up God. And the blessings are just beginning and the plan of God is just starting to work itself out. We'll have more about that next week. But for now, let's just remember the lessons. It's not about me. It's all about him. The answers are not found in the word. They're, they're not found in the world. They're found in the word. And when we humble ourselves, God will lift us up. God had a plan and Joseph was a part of it. But here's the amazing thing. You're a part of God's plan too. You, little old you, are a part of God's big, massive, eternally significant plan. You play a role in what God has planned. He wants to change the world through you. Remember, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. You could just write this down. You don't have to look it up. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Beforehand, before you were born, before you were created, God had a plan for your life, and he is inviting you to join his plan and be a part of something great. You don't have to stop and go, how can I make my life meaningful? How can I make my life important? How can I come up with a good purpose? God has given you a purpose. God has a plan. He has prepared you and shaped you and molded you for just such a time as this, and he wants to use you, you. He wants to use you to change the world. There is no doubt about it. God has a plan. And if you'll humble yourself at the right time, he will lift you up. The only question is whether you'll join him in his plan or whether you keep pursuing your plan. What will you do? Let's stand and pray together. God, we want to give you all praise and glory. We want to follow Joseph's example in saying that, that everything that is good in us is good because of you. We want to say that every good gift that we have has come from you. We want to say that everything that we have to offer that is of value to anybody is because you have offered it to us. God, we want to give you all the praise and all the glory. We know it's not about us. We know that it's all about you, God. I pray that you would help us to walk in these truths this week. 
not just this week, but forever. God, show us how to take steps in keeping with your plan. Show us how to trust you more so that we will never, ever bail out right before you're about to do something amazing. Thank you for the example of Joseph, God. We pray that you would help us to be more like him, patient, trusting you, and willing to keep glorifying you above all else. And, and if you'll do that, Father, won't you please also use us to change the world? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.